0: I see my life come shining From the west down to the east Any day now, any day now I shall be released
1: Hello, I am Alex Hannaford and this is The Innocents.
2: Hello, I'm producer Pete and today... We are talking to Sabrina Butler-Smith. Sabrina Butler. Sabrina Butler. Sabrina Butler. Sabrina
0: Butler was a Mississippi teenager who was convicted of murder and child abuse in the death of her nine-month-old son, Walter.
2: Alex, tell me about Sabrina. Back in the spring of
1: 1989, when Sabrina was just 18, she rushed into a hospital near where she was living in Mississippi With her nine-month-old son, Walter, he had stopped breathing and Sabrina had been unable to resuscitate him. And little Walter had internal injuries. She gave different accounts of what had happened and she eventually signed a statement saying that she'd punched him in the stomach to stop him crying and she was charged with his murder.
2: And a year later, I believe, she went on trial. Can you tell me what happened and how they convicted her?
1: She did. Understandably, the jury, you'd you'd expect, heard about her signed statement. It was sort of a, as far as the prosecution were concerned, it was a done deal. Um, They were also shown an autopsy report, which detailed Walter's internal injuries. Now, her defence lawyer at the time said the bruises on his body were the result of her clumsy attempts to revive him. But they called no witnesses. And as you can probably expect, Mississippi... Um, In the late 80s, she was convicted and sentenced to death.
2: Sentenced to death? That's very unusual for a female prisoner, right? Yeah. um, Actually,
1: there are far, far, far fewer women sentenced to death in America than men. But like I said, um, this is Mississippi. This is in the late 80s. Sabrina is black and this is the death of a child. So although it's unusual for a woman to be sentenced to death in the United States, they are sentenced to death. And this is a case where you kind of think, well, I can understand why a Mississippi jury in the 80s would would do that.
2: And the fact that we're talking to her today suggests she's no longer on death row or indeed in prison. Can you tell me what happened and also how Clive Stafford Smith fits into this, the, the British lawyer? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So she was on death row for three years and then she spent five more in prison. And she actually became the first woman to be exonerated and freed from death row in the United States, so a really, really kind of pivotal story and Clive Stafford Smith, as you mentioned, is the british lawyer hes i 've known Clive for a long, long time. He made his name uh, representing death penalty cases in America in Louisiana, actually, and then became a sort of household name when he represented a hundred or more Guantanamo Bay detainees in legal action that they were taking so First of all, um, Sabrina's conviction was set aside in 1992 after the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled that the prosecution were wrong to comment on her decision not to testify at her original trial. Now, of course, that was probably a legal manoeuvre by her defence. She didn't testify and the prosecution sort of said that the jury should infer something from that. And obviously they did. So there was a retrial in 1995 and clive stafford smith took on sabrina's case he presented testimony that she tried to perform cpr on baby walter and most importantly this time he brought along a medical expert who said that the injuries the baby had suffered were consistent with those desperate attempts to resuscitate him
2: so in the second trial she was acquitted for these reasons and One of the things she did to help her get through prison was was to write about her experiences. And and I believe she's still writing now. Is that right?
1: She kept a diary while she was in prison and she's been writing sort of ever since. And she's she's a big advocate for um, the wrongfully convicted, for the incarcerated. And she, um, you know, like we've talked about many times on this series, as painful as it is to sort of recount the worst thing that ever happened to you, Sabrina is is using that as a tool to educate people about what can happen and does happen in the American judicial system and also to help, I suppose, give people um, hope that are uh, in a similar situation. A brief word from one of our sponsors. Earlier this year, more than 100 Twitter users got their accounts hacked into. Passwords, email addresses, phone numbers and more, all taken from high-profile people like Joe Biden, Elon Musk, even Kanye West. These kinds of attacks are getting more frequent and more severe. And it's not just Twitter. Facebook, eBay, Uber, Adobe, Yahoo have leaked data such as passwords, credit card information, and driver's licenses belonging to billions of users. Look, if someone can hack Joe Biden... Just imagine how easy it would be for them to hack you, which is why I use ExpressVPN to safeguard my personal data online. According to recent reports, hackers can make up to $1,000 from selling someone's personal information on the dark web, making people like me and you easy, lucrative targets. ExpressVPN is an app that funnels your data through a secure encrypted tunnel so that no matter what device you use, you can have peace of mind every time, you use, the internet. The app connects with just one click, it's lightning fast, and the best part is ExpressVPN works on up to five devices simultaneously, so you and your whole family can stay protected. If a breach can happen to powerful individuals, it can easily happen to you, so you can protect yourself with ExpressVPN, the VPN rated number one by CNET, Wired, and countless others. So if you visit expressvpn.com slash masses right now, you can arm yourself with three Extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn, EXPRESSVPN.com slash masses as in huddled masses. Visit expressvpn.com slash masses to learn more. and uh also i know clive stafford smith i've been covering criminal justice for so long that you know yeah i've known him for a long time yeah so um
3: clive is my guy i mean i love clive (laughs) i never you know he's 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 my best friend
1: of course yeah of course
3: by age 15 sabrina was married and pregnant Two years later, she was divorced and pregnant with her second child, Walter Jr. In
0: 1989, Sabrina Butler lived in this apartment complex alone with her infant son. She was just a teenager, but what happened here changed her life forever.
1: So he was a, he was a very good kid, and you, of course, didn't, you didn't know that something was, something was wrong until the night that something went wrong. Walter Jr. was a very good kid. He was sweet little baby. I didn't know he was sick as he was. Because, you know, I was only,
3: I was a child myself, so I didn't know what to look for. He was always smiling and laughing. If he was sick, you didn't know it. Mm. Most of the time, he was the type of baby that, you know, he loved his pacifiers, and he would always put one in his own mouth. When he wanted to fuss or cry, he would find that pacifier, and he would stick it in his mouth. That was the cutest thing. I used to think that was funny because I'd never seen a baby do that. And so I never knew that something medically was wrong. You know, when he was born, they didn't tell me anything like that. So I didn't know to look for these things.
1: And then the night that the, the tragedy occurred, I mean, he, he stopped breathing and you were attempting to do CPR on him. This is kind of crucial. You rushed down to a neighbor who mm-hmm. helped you uh, resus- yeah. try to resuscitate him. And it's key because this someone was a witness to, to what you did, to you trying to save your little boy's life. Yes, uh, it was somebody. I, mean, I didn't know her. Mm. I really didn't.
3: She just was there to help. And when she applied CPR, she didn't tell me the right way because I did adult CPR on Little Walter. But the part that got me about it was even though she was a witness, they never used her. She never was called in the case.
0: Butler says she ran door to door when she discovered her son not breathing. As a teen mom, she knew very little about caring for a baby and didn't know how to help him. She finally found a neighbor at home, but it was too late. Within 24 hours, Sabrina lost her son and was now being questioned by the police about his death.
1: When was the first time that you realized that you were a suspect in a murder?
3: The next day,
1: because
3: when I went home that night, I wasn't honest with them, You know, when I first got to the hospital, I was scared because I felt like I knew I was in trouble for leaving him at the house by itself, but I never thought that they would, you know, charge me with murder. So I told them whatever, you know, I could. And when I went home the next morning, when I went to the hospital is when they took me back down to the police station. When they took me to the police station, that's when I found out that they were charging me with murder.
1: You were arrested. Did you have a lawyer with you when they questioned you?
3: No, I did not. I had nobody but myself. I did not know my rights.
1: They didn't tell you you were entitled to one? or No, they didn't.
3: They read me my rights, but at 17, i had never been in trouble before, so I didn't know nothing about, you know, uh, you have the right to remain silent, that kind of stuff. I thought it meant be quiet until spoken to. I didn't know that whatever you say can actually be held against you. So I didn't know all of that, you know, then, and they just took advantage of that is what they did.
1: Did you have a parent or guardian with you?
3: No parent, no guardian.
1: And you were a minor? Absolutely. Tell me about the, I know that I read that um, at the police station, the detective that was investigating began to yell at you, I think.
3: Yeah, he was yelling at me and they jumped up in my face. Like they were finna, you know, he got in my face. You know how you're getting ready to jump on somebody or fight somebody. That's the way they did the whole four hours. And I was scared to death. I didn't know what to do. I mean, that had never happened to me before. I, you know, I had never been interrogated. And everything I told him, he said, no, that ain't what happened. You beat your baby, you stomped him, you, this is what you did to the baby. And when he um got through, he decided to write a statement. And that statement, what he wrote is what I signed. But how I did it, I didn't sign where he told me to. I signed at the bottom of the paper, hoping that somebody would see that, you know, something was wrong with this and question that. That was my only thing, you know, that was the only ditch effort I had. Because I didn't know what else to do. Because I knew he was making me sign something that I didn't do.
1: This is less than 24 hours after your son had died in the most harrowing of circumstances. Um, You signed a piece of paper that ultimately sealed your fate. It was a confession. And you've said that people who say that they would never sign a false confession have never been in your shoes.
3: And never been interrogated. You have to be interrogated to understand what those police officers do to you in order to get a confession. And then if you're a child, think on top of that, it's even, it's even more worse because I was a kid.
1: The questioning from the police, it was relentless. How long did it go on for?
3: It was four hours. That was four hours of interrogation.
1: And they never spoke to your neighbor who would have corroborated what you'd been saying?
3: If they spoke to her, she I had no way of knowing that because she never took the stand. How I found out whatever my neighbor said was through documents that Clive got. Other than that, I didn't see it through my first attorneys. They didn't call not one witness in my case, not one.
1: Were you able to go back home, Sabrina, after this?
3: No. I was charged with capital murder in the course of child abuse. They charged me with a child abuse law. Wasn't even a law until 23 days after
1: I was locked up. What about Walter's funeral?
3: I didn't get to go to that. Didn't know where he was buried. Didn't know anything.
1: Did you have time to grieve?
3: No, I did not. I did not. That was one of the hardest things for me. And um, when I got out, I didn't find him till two years later after I got out where he was buried. I had no clue. Didn't know where he was, nothing. And that that really right there was the worst. You know, that was a struggle for me. Mm. They didn't give me the opportunity. You know, you accuse me of killing my child. And then I don't know where he's buried. You know, and that, that's wrong. That's wrong for anybody
1: to have to go through. How long were you in jail before your trial?
3: I sat in the county jail for a year before I even saw my attorneys. I saw them two days before trial and they gave me no preparation, no nothing. I didn't know you know, what I was supposed to do as far as the jury. All I was told to do was sit and look at the jury. And one of my attorneys, he was drunk during the whole trials. He was popping candy. I kept begging to take the stand in my own defense and they wouldn't let me. They kept saying, we got this thing nipped in the bud. We don't want you to take the stand.
1: What was their strategy? What were they saying? How were they going to get you off?
3: They just said, we got it nipped in the bud. They, to me, I didn't see no strategy. What I saw at that age was that the district attorney had a, had the courtroom sold up. They were listening to everything that he said, even the the jury. The jury pool was majority white. I had two blacks. One of them was an alternate. So it was, it wasn't a jury of my peers. And everything that the district attorney said, they were I mean, they were leaning on their seats. But then when my attorney stood up and said the little stuff that he did say, they were uninterested. They were looking at the ceiling, on the floor, everything else. So at that age, I knew that my life was over. I knew it. I just had a feeling because of the way the court system thing was going. I knew it. I didn't know anything else, the laws, all that stuff they were saying. But I knew that.
1: Did your attorney call... A medical professional to testify?
3: He used everything with the state. That's what I'm saying. He didn't call not one witness in my defense. And then later not later on, I found out all he received was $1,500 for my case. $1,500 was all he got for a capital case. That's ridiculous. When somebody's life is on the line and all you get is $1,500.
1: Did he hire an investigator?
3: He didn't hire anybody. They didn't do the investigative work that they should have done in my case. That's why Clive spent so much time doing that and had everything that they should have done. The only thing that that attorney did was when I received the death penalty, he wrote the brief and Clive argued it to the state Supreme Court.
1: They did not call this neighbor who would have uh, corroborated what you were saying about giving your child CPR.
3: No, she did not take the stand. She said in the back of the courtroom the whole time.
0: Sabrina Butler couldn't believe the words when she heard it, guilty of murdering her infant son. Her trial lasted one week. She was convicted and
3: sentenced to death row.
0: She was just 17 years old and facing the death penalty.
3: Sabrina Butler was sent to wait for her execution in Parchman, Mississippi. She was just the second woman on Mississippi's death row at the time.
1: You spent more than five years in prison and, and 33 months on death row. Can you paint a picture of what that was like for our listeners?
3: Death row was one of the worst things that anybody could ever imagine. Whew. Death row was, it was hell, put it like that. I did not know that the state had to exhaust all state remedies before they could actually carry out a death sentence. So, you know, July the 2nd, 1990 was my death date. And uh, I, I was scared to death. You know, I cried. I paced the floors. I listened for every chain, every sound, because I thought that that was the actual day that they were coming to kill me. I didn't know what to do. I, I mean, what can you do? When you're in a cage like that and, you know, you know you're innocent and nobody's listening, what
1: can you do? You were in the cage for 23 hours a day? 23 hours. One hour for exercise. Absolutely. How were you treated by the corrections officers, Sabrina?
3: The correction officers treated me like I was a monkey in a cage, in other words, because they would get their friends and they would come down and they would say, Ooh, look, this is the youngest death row inmate we have. And she's always smiling. But I smiled because I know I didn't do anything wrong. And so actually, they liked me. They didn't treat me bad. You know what I mean? They didn't. The reason that I started writing when I was on death row, because at first I was crying all the time. And the security guard came down to me and said that if I did not stop that, that they would send a psychiatrist down. And I didn't want that. So I had to come up with something you know, because I didn't want them to shoot me up with nothing. I didn't know what their intent was because I had never been to prison before, so I didn't know what to expect. So all I had was paper and pencil.
1: Tell me about some of the things you wrote.
3: When I started writing, I had in my cell, I had one window and I would look out that window all the time and look at the different inmates and stuff that were there. I just would imagine what their charges was and what they were doing. And, you know, I started writing stuff like that, fictional stuff. Mm -hmm. Then I just started getting into my feelings and writing what I felt about, what I could do to try to change things. On Wednesdays, they would let us go to the law library. And so I would start getting addresses of different people, you know, that were in power that probably possibly could help me. So I started writing letters and sending those out to different people, to different organizations. That's what I started doing. My journal, I kept it until I got out. I just wrote every day.
1: Do you ever look back at, at it, Sabrina? What?
3: I do because see what I'm doing is the second edition that I'm doing in my book, most of the journal writing that I'm doing, I'm making it a part of my book. People have been trying to get it, trying to get it for years, but no, I'm not give that sensitive information. <laughs> no, it's too it's sensitive and it's precious
1: to me, you know? But you are going to you're going to incorporate yes, some of it in your I am. book. I am. A brief word from one of our sponsors. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counselling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available which may not be locally available in many areas and the service is available worldwide. You can log into your account anytime, send a message to your counsellor and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in that uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great Therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit their website, read their testimonials that are posted daily like this one. It's like talking to a good friend. paid you lets things flow naturally and then boom, all of a sudden all your issues are out. And she helps you come up with strategies to work through them, so visit BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. dot slash masses, as in huddled masses. That's BetterHelp, and join the over one million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states. And there's a special offer for listeners to the Huddled Masses podcast, The Innocents. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash masses. What do you think, you know, aside from the fact that you're using it to write another book, what does it mean to you when you look back over what you wrote back then? Does it bring it bring it back in a bad way, thinking about the worst time in your life or does it does it help you sort of process stuff?
3: Well, sometimes when I look back, I just think about the, the low moments that I had where, you know, the holidays come around and you don't have your family. I didn't have my sons, you know, it brought back that and then it brought back showing me how immature I was, too. And how much I had grown over the years, you know, just looking at my writing, it showed how much I had had matured.
0: Two new attorneys entered Sabrina's life and began digging deeper into what they believed were major discrepancies in her case. Her case was appealed
3: to the Mississippi Supreme Court.
1: When did you first hear that you had a pretty good shot at an appeal and who was representing you?
3: I heard uh, about my uh, shot at my appeal through Clive. Clive was the only one Mm. who came to the prison and talked to me. Clive brought me art materials, stuff like that, that they will allow him to bring in. He brought stuff that, you know, that kept me going.
1: And he, he just, he wrote to you, did he, first of all, or he just turned up?
3: No. What happened, how Clive got in touch with me, when I was incarcerated in the county jail in Columbus, Mississippi, another inmate from Rankin, I mean, Parchman, wrote me a letter. And he was what you call a jailhouse lawyer. And he told me that, you know, by looking at my case and all that stuff, he said, they can't do that. He said, you know, that's wrong what they're doing. I know somebody that I can contact to let you know about and then they can help you from there. So what he did was he gave my name to the Privacy Center in Jackson. That's how they got in touch with Clive.
1: I understand that initially your conviction was overturned due to prosecutorial misconduct. They basically ruled that the trial prosecutor had improperly commented on your decision not to testify at your trial. Is that correct? That's correct. But it
3: was more things than that. There was like 23 violations against the uh, district attorney. He took the jury to a picnic while they were supposed to be sequestered. He did a whole bunch of stuff. He talked to the doctors and nurses all in one room. But the main thing, the main violation that they went against was the him alluding to the fact that I didn't take the stand. And he kept saying stuff during the whole trial, which rightfully so was to my benefit. Because if he hadn't have never did that, you know what I'm saying? I would have probably still been trying to fight to get off death row. He thought he was doing something good, but it actually it turned in my favor. And I thank God a thousand days for that because if he hadn't have never said what he said, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you.
1: I guess the irony here is that you wanted to take the stand in your defense and your attorneys at the time didn't want you to.
3: Right. I begged and pleaded to take the stand, but they wouldn't let me do that. They kept saying, no, we got this thing nipped in the bud, but they had it nipped in the bud. They had the death penalty nipped in the bud because they sentenced me March 13th of 1990. And my death date was July the 2nd, just a few months later. I mean, it was crazy. That was crazy how they did that to me. I mean, to know that you can exist in this world with people like that is the one of the hardest things because... I know I didn't commit no crime. The only thing I did wrong was leave the house. But you can't tell me. There's a lot of people out there say, baby, stay right here. Let me run to the mailbox. I wasn't even gone 10 minutes. But that almost cost me my life. And that's the reason why I fight so hard, because people make mistakes. I was only 17. I, You know, I've been on my own since I was 14. Didn't have any you know, proper rearing as far as my children were concerned. I was just trying to be a parent an adult, you know, and I was a kid myself. So you, you bound to make mistakes.
1: I think in Texas, maybe in the U S the average time on death row for an inmate before execution is about 10 years. And, and that's because of all the appeals that they, they have to have by law. Right. We know that the, you know, it costs more to keep an inmate on death row than it does in regular prison for the whole of their life right. because of all these appeals. And yet with your case, not only were you innocent, but they were trying to rush you to the death chamber. That's
3: right. My mom stepped in, though. She did come back into my life after she found out I was on death row and she started getting in the media. She kept my case alive. So when a person is on death row, if they don't have a good family, strong foundation in the background, then they can hang it up. I mean, because that or somebody out there to believe in them. That's what you need in a situation like that.
1: Hmm. And one of the things Clive did was get in touch with the witness who we, we talked about yes. earlier on, um, this witness who was there when this all happened and was, you know, trying to help with CPR. Finally, somebody has contacted the witness and said, tell me about that night. Right. And then crucially, uh, a medical expert testified that the injuries could have been caused by your efforts to save Walter.
3: Right. But the thing about it was he was already sick. He had heart problems, kidney problems, and chronic bowel syndrome. So yeah. whatever was wrong with him, by us doing CPR on him, we might have just pushed it throughout his body, not knowing, you know what I'm saying, that he had problems. But when somebody's scared and you're applying adult CPR, you don't know what you're doing, you could be causing more problems. But that was not murder. That wasn't that was murder. Hmm. And And my thing is that even now today, Walter's death certificate says that he was murdered. So I'm fighting the state of Mississippi right now to try to fix that because they know that that's wrong.
1: Just on the kidney condition, you mentioned something earlier that I know you you sort of said it quickly, but I kind of picked up on it. One of your children now has that same hereditary kidney condition. Yes,
3: my daughter has the same disease. Yes, she does. And the name of the disease is called polycystic kidney disease. Mm. And LaWalters was worse than hers. Sabrina
0: was exonerated when investigators determined her son died from natural causes. Six and a half years after the guilty verdict, she won her appeal and was set free.
1: Sabrina, when you were acquitted at that second trial in December 1995 and you were released, I want to, I want to, I want to know how you felt. I mean, and it sounds kind of a, a bizarre question to ask whether you felt anger or happiness, but I think that you know, in your case, you, you know, you've been the victim of prosecutorial misconduct, you've said that that you, know, you were put where you were put through the ambitions of the men, the prosecutors and the police who were responsible. Mm-hmm. So maybe it isn't such a, a crazy question to ask. Maybe you weren't as happy and elated as people on the outside might think you would be the day you left prison.
3: When I got the verdict and I was found not guilty, I was happy. I couldn't contain, I couldn't even stand up. I lost my footing and I fell in the courtroom because I was ecstatic. I was happy to be free, but I quickly learned that freedom is not what it was. You know, I still feel like a prisoner today because a lot of things that I think that I should have been afforded, I have not been afforded. Even though I am not in a cell, I'm still in prison the way I feel because I have to fight for the things that I already should have, which is horrible. That's not fair. I didn't go to them and say, hey, I want to go to death row. Put me on death row. Steal my life from me. And so now I'm still having to fight with these people to get what's supposed to already been mine. That's, That's the part that hurts me the most because I don't feel like I should have to struggle like I'm struggling. I don't. I really don't.
1: Did the prosecutors or police involved ever admit their failings?
3: Nobody never said they were sorry. The detective who wrote the statement came to me one day in a Walmart and he said, you know, when people do stuff wrong, you just got to learn to forgive them. That's what he said. That's exactly what he said. And I just looked at him because I I mean, you know, I was like, how dare you come up to me and say something like that? At least you could have said, I'm sorry for what I did. But. Detectives and police officers, some of them, when they do wrong, they don't admit it. They keep it going.
1: Hmm. Sabrina, you told us earlier that you, for two years, you, you didn't even know where Walter was buried. Now you're out. That first time you experienced freedom, I know you went to pay your respects to his grave, and I wonder two things. Tell me about that that first time, and also whether you have ever been a, a, able to grieve, even since since your release.
3: I have. I have been able to, but it's not easy because when I found out what his death certificate said, that just made it even more, you know, hurtful to me. Now, where he's buried, I can't get in there because whoever owned the cemetery it has went down. So he's buried in the woods, off a rock road, under a tree. It's very bad the place where he is, and his father. Me and him still talk right now. And he went out there to try to see if Walter was buried in a metal casket or a box back then. And we're assuming that it is, you know, it is a box because we can't feel anything. You know how you stick the pole down in the ground to see. So we can't even move him. And that's heartbreaking because we can't even get to him. The earth has taken everything back. All of those uh, headstones and all that stuff. It's appalling. I mean, I don't know what to do. I, there's nothing that I can do.
1: Is it on private land or something?
3: We don't know who own it. We don't know anything. We just know that the earth has taken it back, and there's no way for us to get in to where he is. That's the hurtful part for me, because I wanted him exhumed to put in in a better place, but I, I can't do that. I can't. I can't even exhume
1: him. You campaign for the wrongfully convicted. Right. And I wondered how hard is it for you to do that day in, day out, considering what you went through. And doesn't it bring it all back?
3: It's it's hard. It's, it's it, it drains my spirit. But I know that at the end of it, I'm doing it for the right reason. You know what I mean? Even though it's hard, I still know that I've learned that well, people tell my mom told me a closed mouth don't get fed. So you cannot fix nothing quiet. You have to fight for what you believe in, especially if you know it's right. So I just have to keep going. No matter what, you know, I face, I'm still going to keep fighting until I can't fight no more because I know that this has to be changed. It's got to be changed because it's not right. It's racially motivated. It costs taxpayers too much money to do. Then you cannot, in a spiritual sense, take another person's redemptive period. We're not God. How can you say, You know, you have the right to live, you have the right to die. I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna do I mean that doesn't make sense. If we're gonna kill our citizens, you know what I mean? I just don't feel like we have the right to do that. I just don't. Butler now tours the country fighting to end the death penalty.
0: There are one hundred and forty four people in the United States who have been exonerated from death row, and Sabrina Butler is the only woman. She says becoming an activist has helped her to heal.
1: Three months ago, you filed a petition requesting a judge change the cause of Walter's death from homicide to undetermined. Right. Tell me about that and whether you think the county will be receptive to that request. Well,
3: they wasn't receptive at, at first. I mean, when the lawyer filed it, they said they didn't want to get involved either way or not. But you're going to have to get involved simply because it came out of your office. I don't care who did it it needs to be fixed. I have went through the courts. I have proven my case. I have also received money from the state of Mississippi, but yet it's still my son's death certificate says that he was murdered. That doesn't make sense. You're still putting crutches in my life. If I wanted to go, you know, and do something as far as nursing or take, I can't do that with that. You know what I mean? That's a crutch to stop me still, once again, from doing or from living my life. That is not right.
1: So what does exoneration mean? I mean, you know, you obviously don't have a record. They admitted that they were wrong, that you were innocent, that this never happened, this was never a crime. But there's still this stigma.
3: It's still there. And no matter where I go in life, even though they say you're exonerated, you're never free. They can still pull that up in any state. Any state I want to go to, if somebody wanted to just dig deep, and look into that, it's still there. It never goes away. Once you go to jail, it's going to completely be on your record. They lie when they say that it comes off. It doesn't completely come off your record. It's always there, no matter what charge you have. It's always there.
1: This holiday season, more people will be mailing stuff than ever before, which means the post office is going to be pretty busy. You don't have time for that. Stamps.com brings the post office and now UPS shipping right to your computer so you can mail and ship anything from the convenience of your home or office. With Stamps.com, anything you can do at the post office, you can do with just a few clicks. So it'll save you money with deep discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. It's a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller fulfilling orders during this record-setting holiday season, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, Any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. And once your mail's ready, just schedule a pickup or drop off, and it's that simple. With stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code, Masses, as in huddled Masses, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. So there's no long-term commitment or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Masses, stamps.com, never go to the post office again.
2: Once again, an utterly tragic story and an incredible injustice. Dealing with the death of her son and the loss of liberty at the same time, and being put on death row, just must have been extraordinary. Um, and again, Alex, we're talking about a forced confession.
1: Yeah, I mean the the treatment by police and prosecutors. You d- don't forget, look, her baby had just died. She's alone. There's no attorney present. No guardian uh, when she's questioned by detectives and less than twenty four hours. After her baby died, no time to grieve, she is charged with his murder. So there's deficient defense. The trial lasted just a week. Shoddy, shoddy treatment by the authorities. And it's just, it's horrific listening to it. You know, you sort of think, at first you sort of think, why would you sign a statement that says you did this? Why would you admit to this? But again, try and picture what this looked like. This is a young woman, um, desperate in a situation where she's sort of thinking shit did i do the wrong thing i tried to help i tried to bring my baby back to life and and here she is being interrogated hour after hour after hour until she breaks down and so obviously she's understandably emotional when talking about death row but just think about what happened previous to that she's just lost her baby and the tragedy continues you know she wants now which I wasn't ready for actually I knew a bit about her story but I didn't know this that she today wants to exhume baby Walter and put him in what she describes as a better place but she can't even access the land where he was buried he was buried without her consent in a place she didn't know and the death certificate still said her son was murdered despite her being exonerated despite her being released from death row it's utterly shocking
2: it certainly is and she also dedicates a big part of her life to campaigning for death penalty abolition doesn't she she travels around giving talks on her experiences
1: yeah that's the other thing i mean you know you 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 might think oh this is a long time ago you know she can talk but it's all these people i don't think there's anybody that we've spoken to in this series who doesn't find talking about this stuff really tough the the stuff that they 've been through, and that 's something we've we 've talked about you know behind the scenes Pete is the kind of ethics around talking to these people we 've had long conversations about it. How do you talk to these people in a sort of ethical way without making them i don't want to kind of put them on the spot to sort of relive these worst moments but in some cases they've offered this sort of level of detail which is shocking but also you sort of think they're doing this for a reason they want people to be shocked they want us to understand what happened and what still happens today and by telling these stories they're hoping that it goes some way Some small way to sort of um, shedding light on this.
2: It was also interesting when she spoke about the stigma of having been in prison and having been on death row. She's been exonerated. She's been cleared. She's no longer in prison. People still knew that about her. She said it still impacted her day-to-day life in terms of employment and, and how people treated her.
1: I think that gets to the heart of this series, doesn't it? It's like you know, it's called the innocence, and the ultimately what we're looking at is what innocence actually means. And you know, for somebody who is complete, there have been people we've talked to who technically aren't haven't been exonerated. They're free from from prison, but they still have this kind of um, albatross around their neck. In her case, she's been completely exonerated. Uh, the state admitted they were wrong. But, yeah, she still feels that she was a convicted felon and she's always going to be have to deal with that and have to kind of have that weight.
2: That's enough for now, I think. Alex, I'll see you next week and give me some credits.
1: See you next week, Pete. I will. The Innocence is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer was Peter Sale. Our theme music is I Shall Be Released by Polly Niles, courtesy of Cherry Red Records. Many thanks again. To Sabrina Butler Smith, and thanks also to Alison Walsh and Witness to Innocence for helping arrange the interview. The Innocence is a DMT media production for Audio Boom.
0: They say everything can be replaced, they say every distance is not near so i remember every face of every man who put me here i see my life come shining